We read in Acts 4, 13 to 31. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider your th- their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders for the name of your servant, Jesus After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Summer is an amazing but perilous season. When I was a kid, uh, summer days were filled with exploring creeks and building forts, staying up late, and generally living without a care in the world. That's kind of how it works as kids. You're not usually too concerned with all the things that could go wrong. Nothing seemed to scare us. But lately, uh, Katie and I have been looking at uh, summer not as a kid, but as parents, and it's also a bit scary. Every adventure that you can have in the summertime contains some amount of risk. There's dehydration, there's bugs that can bite and sting, there's sunburn, there's poison ivy, there's fireworks that could maybe get too close, there's deep ends of the pool. All of those things aren't exactly safe. I've even heard that too much water can kill you. Have y'all heard that? Too much water can kill you? It can. If all that wasn't enough to make a parent stressed, I read an article recently about a hidden danger lurking on any tropical beach. Of course, there are jellyfish and there are risky currents. But apparently, according to statistics, the real killer lurks high in the trees, ready to take your life the moment the wind blows. I'm talking about silent assassins, or what we know as falling coconuts. (laughs) 
You laugh. But back in 2002, some scientists did a study on the dangers you might encounter at the beach. Drowning was the most common, but they found a surprise in all of their research. You're more likely to die from getting hit in the head by a falling coconut than a shark attack. Okay, so the math was actually pretty striking. Falling from three stories high, a coconut has the potential to hit the ground at about 50 miles an hour with an adjusted weight of about a ton. I didn't do the math. I just read this. These researchers discovered that around 150 people around the world are killed every year by coconuts dropping on their heads. Okay, like around the world, this is a danger. Less than five people die from shark attacks on average. Okay, so they wisely said, you know, yeah, worry about sharks, but you should really be worrying about those coconuts. <laughs> and as a father, I'm grateful because now I can protect my wife and children from this awful threat. Now I know that it's out there. Best two solutions that I could come up with, they wear helmets or I bring a chainsaw, which is not typical beach, you know, things you bring to the beach. Hopefully, though, none of us will lose sleep over falling coconuts, right? We live far away. They can't reach us here. Modern life has reduced the risk of our, uh, that our ancestors experienced to manageable levels in our lifetime so that most of us live in relatively safe and secure communities. Sure, you might run into a bear every now and then or get lost on some of these mountain roads, but Jasper, Pickens County, never makes it onto the list of most dangerous places to live, usually. Sadly, we'd be fooling ourselves if we believed that our lives were free from danger. Our world is still a fairly dangerous place. Even the most cautious of us haven't eliminated risk uh, from our lives. Driving to work, cooking, cleaning, walking down the stairs all seem routine until an accident happens and we experience embarrassment and pain and frustration. Illness or disease strike at any moment, often without warning. Sometimes doctors call with not good news, but bad news. They want more tests. Even worse, our world can hurt us in ways beyond physical pain. We have all experienced some amount of tragedy in our life. A dream that didn't come true. Plans that fell apart. Maybe a loved one that's gone too soon. Maybe you've experienced the pain of losing your job or you've retired and now you have to rest in the anxiety of what comes next. How do you fill your day? The very brokenness of this world can often be uh, too overwhelming. Just watching the news reveals how vulnerable modern life can be to disease or war or random out of control violence or accidents. The pandemic that we went through the past two years didn't just uproot our routines, but it sort of uprooted our souls. It altered our lives in ways that a lot of us are still trying to process. Even if we didn't lose anyone or we didn't get sick, it still has changed our world. Sometimes it's hard to find any hope, much less a sense of security. War, no matter where it starts, never, but never makes anybody feel much safer, even if it's happening Across an ocean, it's still worrying. Faced with such risk, it feels impossible to know how to respond, both as a human but also as a believer. Because the question we find, the command we find in Scripture, is that our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, wants us to engage with the world around us. So how should we? 
Should we hide from everything that might hurt us? Minimizing our potential for suffering. There are communities out there that do this, right? The Amish have sort of retreated from the modern world and created sort of an alternate uh, you know, community that they live in, away from a lot of the modern dangers. Maybe we should fight against the darkness and wrestle control away from our enemies. We see that happen all the time on the news. People are arguing over important and silly things. You could even turn on ESPN. Most of those shows are just people arguing about sports. Or we could just blend in, accommodating our beliefs to avoid conflict and, frust- and confrontation. See, each of those options might have some merit, but believers are called to do something much more profound. We are supposed to enter in to the broken world. We are supposed to engage it. We are supposed to help restore it. Thankfully, Peter and John provide us with a blueprint for how believers should engage with such a broken world when they heal a crippled man and tell the people gathered about Jesus. So the story begins in Acts 3 when Peter tells a beggar that they don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus, he will walk again. That's, first off, kind of hilarious, I think, but it's also a wonderful illustration of grace. The beggar is asking for money, and he says, no, actually, in God, I'm going to heal you completely. I'm going to restore something that you've never had because you have not been able to walk since birth. They help him up, and the man starts to walk, jump, and run through the crowd. And all of the crowd recognize him as the man, the beggar, who'd been unable to walk since his birth over 40 years ago. And so crowd forms while Peter and John proclaim the good news about Jesus. Everybody says, well, how did this happen? And they say, Jesus is the one who does this. More people gather to listen, and all of the chief priests, the religious leaders, uh, uh, notice because this is happening in the courtyard of the temple. And they arrest the disciples for disturbing the peace, which is funny because they are actually there to increase the people's peace. From their perspective, the religious leaders had already dealt with the threat Jesus posed. They killed him. He was supposed to be done. For a few weeks, his followers had even disappeared. I would imagine that Caiaphas and Ananias, all the people in charge, were kind of like, good, that's over. We can just get back to normal. But now, the disciples were declaring something even more radical. Jesus had risen from the dead, and the Spirit of God had come to live within his followers. Frustrated, they send the temple guards to intimidate the disciples and all the people listening to them. But by that point, 5,000 had come to a saving faith in Jesus. Peter and John are thrown in jail for the night and head to trial the next day which begins with the Sanhedrin asking who gave them permission to heal the crippled man. A miracle had obviously been done, but they couldn't fit it into their legalistic worldview. They were kind of like, guys, you are not on our approved list of miracle workers. You haven't even applied for a permit. What are you doing? And you have to stop talking about Jesus. Now, rather than mount a legal defense, Peter testifies that the man was healed in the name of Jesus who had come to save his people, but you guys had killed. The Pharisees might have discarded Jesus as a heretic, but he was in reality the cornerstone of God's plan for the salvation of the world. The chief priests can't decide how to punish them, so they threaten them again, 
And then they let them go because all the people were praising God for what had happened. At this point, we have to understand as readers now that the disciples understood these were not empty threats. The consequences that they faced were all too real. If they kept preaching about Jesus, nothing in their life would be safe. Jesus told them already that there would be that they would suffer on account of his name. And here Peter uses Psalm 2 to illustrate the deliberate antagonism our broken world has toward God and his gospel. David wrote way back in Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and is anointed. Like a disease hates the cure, like darkness hates light, so does our world hate the name of Jesus because Jesus comes to restore and make things new. If the disciples continued to proclaim the name of Jesus, danger would follow them until they either recanted their faith or they died a martyr. But here's the important part. The disciples kept preaching anyway. Despite every threat, despite every risk or danger, the disciples preached the name of Jesus to anyone who would listen. They didn't run from their responsibility to share the good news, nor did they confront the Pharisees with physical violence. They didn't try to start a coup. They continued to move toward the broken world so everyone might know the absolute goodness of their Lord and Savior. At their most challenging moment, when their enemies explicitly called for their removal, Peter and John step back into the chaos to embody the love of Jesus. Somehow the disciples changed from scared followers to courageous leaders unafraid of anything. In verse 13, even the Pharisees were astonished at their transformation. So what changed? How did these simple, uneducated fishermen become preachers and apostles, willing to risk their very lives for the sake of the gospel? Their transformation can be traced back to Jesus in three different ways. First is this, knowing Jesus put their fears in perspective. Notice their prayer for empowerment came immediately after their release from jail. Now, most people in this situation would be discouraged. They would run from danger. In fact, that's exactly what they did before Jesus died and rose again. But the cross proved that nothing would ever be able to tear them from the hand of their Lord who loved them and would uphold them no matter what happened. John explains the reason for their courage in his first letter, reminding believers that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is the same John who did this in Acts. Threatened by the leaders that condemned Jesus to die on a cross, Peter and John had every reason to fear their threats carried the weight of financial ruin, social banishment, imprisonment, physical torture, and the grave. They should have been rattled, but Jesus held them in his hands. In Greek, the word used for boldness can be translated as fearless confidence or a cheerful courage. Peter and John knew the danger, but they knew Jesus was bigger and they were unafraid. 
Their faith fostered a boldness because they understood no matter what, their God would never let them go. They proclaimed his name in the face of a thousand threats. And if torture and death came to them at the end of a sword or a noose or even on a cross, they would proclaim his name even then. For Jesus had conquered everything, even death. Second, knowing Jesus grounded their hearts in compassion and gave them a clear purpose. Throughout Scripture, God promised he would bring salvation to his people through the Messiah, the one to rescue his people from death. In Isaiah 61, the future Savior proclaims, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn. In Luke 4, Jesus reads this prophecy in his hometown synagogue and declares, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. After Pentecost, Peter and John proclaim the same message before they're arrested and again at their trial and after they've been released. The word used for proclaim here means to pronounce from above as if they were heralds for a visiting king or an angel sent from God. Their words are a royal declaration that tells the people their God has come to save and restore the broken world and establish a new kingdom. Because they knew Jesus, they knew why they were going into the world. They were going into the world to restore the broken world and establish something new. Even their actions, the miracle itself points to the salvation in Jesus. See, healing the crippled man symbolized the power of Jesus to restore life to the dead and broken. In fact, the miracle is a bit of a spiritual Pun. In the Greek, the word for stand is stasis. Okay, it's important to know, stasis. During the trial, the chief priest cannot ignore the reality that a once crippled man is now anastasis, which means standing again before them. But the irony is that anastasis is also a word used for resurrection. The man who couldn't stand on his own had been raised by Jesus, the one who had been raised from the dead. Y'all get, it's kind of like this multi-layered, it, yeah, if you like puns, this should be awesome. But, but the crippled man was not the only one who embodied the power of Jesus at the trial. Peter and John were doing the same thing because Peter and John had been changed. They had been crippled by their fear before the resurrection, but now they were standing again on Jesus. These were common fishermen that embodied the mysteries and glory of God with supernatural intent. Rather than run from danger, they met the broken world head on so all people might know the same grace that they knew in their Lord. Finally, knowing Jesus helped them overcome evil with good. See, the disciples weren't merely seeking to destroy their enemies but save them. After misunderstanding the big picture for years, the death and resurrection of Jesus freed the disciples to recognize that Jesus was not some random victim of religious intolerance, but God's anointed, 
the one who came to ransom his life for many. Jesus is the one who crushes evil with the heel of his foot, who cleanses sinful hearts with his blood, and who is coming to make a new heaven and a new earth. The disciples knew the dangers of preaching the gospel to a broken world, but they were willing to risk everything because they knew Jesus went with them and Jesus was bigger. Like Paul writes in Romans 8, 37, Jesus made them and he makes all of us more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, the disciples moved to meet the brokenness of their world despite the danger because they knew Jesus. Countless believers throughout history knew Jesus and did the same. If you know anything about uh, St. Patrick, he had been uh, captured and enslaved by the people in Ireland from uh, Great Britain and he escaped and he went home and then he went back to the same people who had enslaved him because he wanted those people to also know the goodness and the grace of, uh, of his God. This happens throughout history and the lives of believers. And the good thing today that we need to know is that we know Jesus too. Engaging with the world, trying to help and share news that will save and redeem will inevitably expose us to danger and risk. But we do not go alone. Jesus goes with us. So let us live in love in such a way that when people look at us, they know that we have also been with Jesus. Let them see gentleness in our words, generosity in how we spend our money, compassion when we respond to conflict. Let us walk among the chaos and sow his peace. Let the world see his grace and our empathy and how we interact with the people around us, with our friends and our family. So everyone might know he lives not just for us, but for the whole world. See, we live in turbulent times. It is scary sometimes to look around at the world and understand that there is risk But I pray that when people look at you and me, they recognize we have been with Jesus so that they might know the grace and love of God the Father too. Hallelujah. Amen.